0: Hey, I want to start today by asking you a question. Do you uh, do you watch much of the television preachers? Anybody? You ever watch some of those guys? I mean, you be honest. Yeah, you watch them every once in a while. Yeah, and they're they're out there, and there are some that are really good. I mean, I don't watch very much. I am a visual learner. I mean, my wife gets on me because I'm always reading the labels on things and stuff. Just I, she says I'm a I'm a printaholic, uh, so I just read everything. But. But every once in a while, I'll watch them. And there are some good guys out there. There's some young guys that really impress me that are doing some good stuff. But I've noticed that a lot of them sort of preach to the choir. They say the things their viewers want to hear. And there's, there's this, they kind of say the same kinds of things. This is what they'll say. For example, they'll say, you know what? You guys are better than everybody else. You're Christians. You're better than them. And our country is blessed, and those countries aren't blessed. We're God's country. We're the place. We're superior. People want to hear that. You guys are superior. You're better than all the others. And the other thing they'll say is, we've got the answers. Any question you want, we can take the Bible, we can tell you. We can tell you when the end times are going to be. We can tell you how to deal with every problem in your life. We've got the answers. Everything's set up and done for you. And then they'll pan out and they'll show these beautiful cathedrals they're preaching in and these campuses. And they'll ask for some money. And you think, these guys must know what they're talking about because they're sure successful. And that's, you know, that's kind of what we hear. You know, we see that and, and it kind of comes before us. So what happens if somebody disagrees with what they say internally within the organization or within the church? A lot of times they get slapped with a lawsuit. Sometimes it goes bad for the organization and the empire crumbles. What happened in the ancient world when somebody was a dissident? They disagreed with the religious leaders. Did they have a lawsuit? Well, sort of, kind of. Yeah, it might start off that way. But in the end, they might find themselves getting stoned. And and I'm I'm not talking about drugs. Okay, we're talking about the real thing. We're going to talk about that today. Now, if you don't like persecution, you should have been here last week because we took a break from our persecution during our series, uh, The Persecuted Church. And last week we talked about how the church had a minority within them called the, Jewish, Grecian, the Grecian Jews and how they addressed this by naming seven men whom we dubbed the Magnificent Seven to take care of the problem. And they did, and things are flourishing and going very well. But one of those men pushes the envelope a little bit too far and gets himself in trouble his name is Stephen and we're going to look today study how the people stoned Stephen so if you'll join with me we're going to look at the beginning here how they dragged him first before the Sanhedrin in chapter 6 verses 8 through 15 we're just going to take a section to start with today it reads now Stephen a man full of God's grace and power did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So we're getting into some, to some pretty serious stuff here. What happens to start with is we're told that Stephen, again, is just a really great guy. And we're told that he has the Holy Spirit, is the one who enables him to be great. He's great because God is working in his life. But he's also called a man of grace, which talks about his winsomeness as he reflects God in his life. So he's, he's just an incredible guy, and God is working in his life, and he's doing some wonderful things. Remember, he is the, the head, the first guy mentioned, of the Magnificent Seven. And these guys, and we believe as we look at this, that they were kind of having a ministry within the church, ministering to this minority of people in the church, uh, who are, would have been the poor people in the church, which, who we call the Grecian Jews, who were actually, they were... Um, what we would call foreign-born Jews. They weren't born in Israel. They were born outside, and oftentimes they had the cultural trappings from where they were from, and they could no longer speak uh, Hebrew or write Hebrew or even speak Aramaic. And we talked about this last week, and so he's ministering to this group, and he's ministering to the needy among them, the poor, the sick, and, uh, and the widows who were especially struggling. And God enables him to probably even heal them and perform miraculous signs among them. And he's doing some incredible stuff. Nobody before this, other than Jesus and the apostles, performed miraculous things, but he's doing that. So the guy gets a lot of fame. His fame goes around the land. This is good stuff. He's taking care of these people. So why would there be any opposition? There's always opposition, right? When we're having fun, somebody always has to ruin our party. And, and that's what happens here. And the guys that come into focus here are the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, who are these guys? It could have been a couple synagogues, probably one. And we believe, most scholars believe that this was a synagogue that was started decades ago when Pompey was a general and he had a lot of Jewish people that were serving him in Rome and they were all slaves. And so he freed them all. And they went to Jerusalem and they didn't have the cultural background anymore. They couldn't speak the language and so forth. So they started their own synagogue. Even though they had a temple in Jerusalem, the different neighborhoods would have their own little synagogues. So they started their own synagogue for people like themselves. And it grew and it became popular. And people from all over went to this synagogue. So that's what they're talking about when they say Sereni, That's modern-day Libya. When they say Alexandria, that's modern-day Alexandria in Egypt. When they talk about Asia and Cilicia, that's in modern-day Turkey. So people were coming from all over to this place. They were the minorities. They were the foreign-born Jews. They were the Grecian Jews. And so they're helping the same people. So why are they upset? Why do you think? Can you figure it out? Stephen's doing nice things for Grecian Jews. These guys are doing nice things for Grecian Jews. Where's the rub? Guess where these guys are going to visit? They're going over to the church. And they're leaving the synagogue. You see what's beginning to happen here? They're seeing them come in. And as that happens, they're not happy with that. You're taking our guys away from us. So they decide to debate them and they debate Stephen and they find that he's not only wise in his action, but he's wise with his words. And he can out debate any of them. I mean, this guy would have been a great guy to have in the debate team. They cannot whip him. And so then what do they do? They get nasty and they start a rumor. And they say, this guy is blaspheming against God, against Moses. He deserves to be put to death. Now, the Jewish Sanhedrin, remember, is the political body of the Jews. And they're like a combination of their Congress and their Supreme Court. And they've been backing off. In fact, we think by now, a lot of people calculate that the church here is about three years old, about the same age as our church. So, three years have gone by. They've tried to keep this movement, this new movement, under control. At this point, the church is still considered part of Judaism, but it's getting unruly. They've tried to look the other way, and now they're frustrated. This guy, Stephen, seems to be willing to talk about some of the differences. Let's put him on trial and see what will happen. And so they put him on trial, but they don't have anything to charge him with. And so, what happens here is very similar to what happens to Jesus, a lot of similarities. And they say, well, what are we going to say? They come up with ideas. They say, oh, he's always talking about the temple, and he's always talking about the law. Probably a half-truth. They're always debating him about these things. What do you think about the temple? What do you think about the law? And so they make a big deal about it. And then they put down Jesus. They say, this Jesus of Nazareth. contemptuous way of saying it. They're discrediting Jesus. They say, he actually believes the stuff that this guy, Jesus, we crucified, said. And listen to some of the stuff... That he's saying. He says that Jesus is going to destroy this temple, that Jesus said he was going to do that. Did Jesus say he was going to come and destroy the temple? He doesn't say that. He just predicts the temple is going to be destroyed. And he just says it's going to happen. And in fact, Tiberius and the Roman army will one day destroy it. In fact, about, oh, about, um, I guess if my calculations are right, about 40 years later. And so he says, this is, this is what's going to happen. And then they say, well, he says that um, the, the, Jesus has changed the law. Did Jesus come to change the law? Actually, Jesus himself said, on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I've come to bring greater fulfillment to it. Now, maybe they didn't understand all this stuff, but they put him on trial, they put him on the spot. And what do you do... When somebody's on the spot, everybody always looks at him, right? How's he dealing with the pressure? And they, they took the camera and they zoomed in on him and they showed him with this orange jumpsuit with the little Star of David on it sitting there. Yeah, I don't think they had jumpsuits, but but they had him sitting there and he's stand, sitting there and everybody's looking at him, seeing how he's going to respond, and he has this incredible countenance. He looks like an angel. What does an angel look like? I'm not really for sure, but most people seem to believe that it was kind of a mix of serenity and courage. Just this peace that he had about him. He looked like one who had been touched by God, one person said. He looks like one who's walking with God. There's a sense of God's presence about the man. Well, they move ahead. And the next thing they do in these following verses is they will listen to what he has to say in verses 2 through 53. Now, they will listen to him. We will not. Okay? There's 50 verses here. And it would be almost like, I mean, I'll get tired of reading it. There's a lot here. So your homework assignment is to read verses 2 through 53. And if you have any questions, come back and let me know. And I'm serious about this. This is an opportunity for you to sort of think about it and think about what's being said here and and wrestle with it some. He gives an overview of really all of, of the history of Israel. And this is a very important message. It's the longest message recorded in this entire book. So he gives an overview and he kind of abbreviates things and cuts to the quick. But the things that he has to say are really powerful. And I want to touch on three of them, the three main things he's going to talk about in his message. One is he talks about the land. And as he talks about the land, by the way, before he talks about the land, he's asked to talk about. He's given a defense, basically, is what he's asked to do. And I just, I have to get this in there. Do you know who was the man who, who was the high priest who asked him to do this? the high priest in charge of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, he's still in position, the same man who sentenced Jesus, the same man who brought Peter and John and the other apostles before him. So he adds to his filthy legacy. Now he asks him the question, he doesn't give so much of a defense but an address. He says, let's talk about the land. And he goes through and he says, there was a time we didn't have any land and our ancestor Abraham was in what is now modern-day Iraq. And he came to modern-day Israel. And then they went during a famine to Egypt. And then Moses helped them escape from slavery in Egypt. And they went to the desert. And then they came back to Israel. And he goes through all this. And he says, great stuff. But here's something he points out that's interesting. He shows examples of how God worked in their lives even when they were not in Israel. God can work in any location. One of his uh, most profound statements is this... this passage he takes where where Moses is at Mount Horeb in the desert before the burning bush. And God says, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground, holy ground in the desert. This isn't Israel guys, the desert. Yeah. Because wherever God is, is holy ground. Whenever you commune in God's presence, you are on holy ground. And so what what Stephen is saying is not that it's wrong to have a nation, not that it's wrong to be proud of your land, but to realize that God is not limited to any country or any location and that he is, works everywhere, and in fact, it's time to expand his kingdom. Is this relevant for us today? I think it is, and I think it's why the television, you know, preachers like to talk on this is we have a tendency sometimes to think of ourselves as Christians as superior people. We're not superior. Just like the Israelites, we're not superior. We're loved by God, we're going to heaven, but we're all sinners. We have a tendency to think, well, God has blessed America and we're better than all other countries. I'm patriotic, I love America, wouldn't want to live anyplace else. But I have no problems with somebody telling me they think their country is the best. I would typically expect that. That's okay. Because next to heaven, none of it matters. None of our countries come even close. And so we need to get that perspective that it doesn't matter what your color, race, background, religion is, that people are people. And God can work in anybody's life and he can work any place. And we shouldn't limit him. Um, and we shouldn't try to, we, we need to be careful we don't have the superiority complex that they were actually falling into. And then the second thing he talks about and and that that the second thing he talks about is uh, after the land, he talks about the law. And he talks about how God supernaturally gave the law to Moses and he quotes from the law in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses said one day there's going to become a prophet after me that will be like me who will come from the people. And obviously he's talking about other prophets, perhaps, but certainly about Jesus. And then he will go in to talk about how they rejected Moses, as earlier the patriarchs had rejected Joseph, and he'll talk about how they rejected Jesus and the other prophets later. So this is kind of an overlying theme that kind of fits into it all. But he talks about how while Moses was getting the law on Mount Sinai, that's where they rejected him. And they rejected him by worshiping an idol, uh, a calf they'd made out of gold. Now, the Jewish people, they didn't feel good about that. They didn't think they were doing that. They were rejecting Moses on that time. But he says, that's what you were. Because your actions, by your actions, you were rejecting his message that he was bringing to you. And he goes on from there to to quote um, uh, Amos, chapter 5, verses 23 through 25. And in Amos, he says, you guys, I let you go over and worship other gods. And that's, you know, by the way, what's the worst thing God can ever do to us? Let us go away and do what we want to do away from him. He says, go ahead and worship your other gods and see where it gets you. And this is where it's got them right now is that they believe they're worshiping the God of the Bible. But if you study their theology at this point, they have created their own God. And what he is basically saying is I'm not against the law. I'm mean, against your interpretation of it. How about us? Is this relevant for us today? The Bible's the greatest book ever written, but can we worship the Bible? Can we try to force fit things into the Bible that aren't there? That's where they ran into problems, because when they had prophecies and they didn't know the answers, they filled it in. And they were wrong. Is it possible for us today to fill in the blanks about the end times? And tell everybody the answers and maybe be wrong when Jesus comes back. Is it possible for us today to tell people the answers to all their problems when those answers aren't always there? I do counseling in a lot of different areas through the years. One of the areas that's fascinated me, I I thought I had this all figured out. I'll tell you a basic one is divorce. Every time I've counseled somebody on divorce, every situation has been different. I'm not kidding you. Over like, you know, 20 some, uh, 20, over 25 years, I think it's been. And they've always been in a different situation. So the Bible gives us guidelines and gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us through that particular situation. When you start force fitting it and saying, this is how it has to always be, you run into problems. That's called legalism. Pretty soon people are telling you how to comb your hair and how to brush your teeth. God has given us the Holy Spirit to work through each situation. He guides us and directs us. But we, we can't get to the point where we're trying to force fit God into a box over every situation. That's what they were doing. And we can easily fall into the same trap. And then he talks finally about the temple. What he says about the temple is he says, you didn't have a temple, you had a big tent. They called it a tabernacle. And that was still a good thing. And Joshua took that into the promised land. And David wanted to make a temple. And God said no. And he let David, he let his son Solomon do it. He said, that's all good. He said, the problem is you've made too much out of your temple. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 2. You know, he says, he says, God says you can't build a building for him because he will never fit in something that human beings have made. He's too big for it. Now, the Jewish people would say, well, we don't really literally believe God is in it. He's just sort of his presence is here. But why was it so important that everybody had to do everything in the temple? As if it was more important than any place else. They treated the temple like it was something sacred, uh, beyond sacred. They were worshiping their temple. They made it too important. They made everything all about their temple. And he's saying that it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, God tabernacles, as we sometimes say, in our hearts. God now, through the Holy Spirit, makes our hearts His temple. So anywhere we go, we have the temple of God with us. So, of course, they weren't happy with this either, but can you see how this applies to us? Is it possible for us to get too caught up in a building that we call a church? Not when it's this building, right? Uh, (laughs) This isn't even our building yet, but it's a pretty nice building, I think. So, yeah, you know, we can get too caught up in that. How many times in the Bible does it talk about, uh, in the New Testament, does it talk about a church building? How many times? Nada. See, I remember, I'm telling you I'm learning Spanish. So, nada. Nothing. It doesn't tell you once. And yet, I've had people say, you know, I can't go to your church. I don't feel comfortable going to it until you have a building. Well, that's less, I mean, the, the Bible, they didn't have buildings. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to have a building. We've talked about that. One day we'll have a building. That'll be great. We'll rejoice in it. But the building needs to, the purpose of the building needs to be to facilitate ministry, not for a place where we feel like, oh, you have to pray in this building. If you pray here, God will hear you better. You know, this building is who we are. This is the church. The church are you people and what you do during the week. Wherever you're at, you're the church. Individually, if you have Jesus in your heart, wherever you're at on this planet, you're the church. Not this building. This is just where the church comes together and worships together. But you're the church. And that's what he's trying to teach them. And then he ends it with a scathing indictment at the end. And we're going to read that just to sort of summarize what he says here. He says, starting in verse 51, he says, You stiff necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Up to this point, he's been saying we, we, we—not not not French—but he keeps using the word we. Right? We are all in this together. And now all of a sudden he says, you are the problem. And he speaks like an Old Testament prophet. And he says, basically, his language here is saying, you're obstinate, you're stubborn, and you won't listen to what God is telling you. You kill the prophets who try to get you back on track. You've even murdered your own Messiah. You have the information, but you're not doing with it like you're supposed to. You're not obeying it. Now, how do they feel about this incredible address? Not really happy. You know, in, in psychology, we call a person like Stephen the truth bearer. You ever heard of the truth bearer? Most families have a truth bearer. That's the person who says, that's not how it really is, right? The truth bearer is the one who told the emperor that he didn't have any clothes on. In the business world, we call the truth bearer the whistleblower. And a lot of times these guys can be heroes and movies can be made about them and everything else until they're telling us the truth, right? But, but he was that kind of guy. And, and the sense is that he wasn't looking to be martyred. He didn't have that. He didn't even know what was happening. They probably stopped him in the middle of his address. He's just an honest person being very honest about what's going on. It's interesting because Peter and the apostles have been waltzing around these issues for three years. They're Hebraic Jews. They're native-born Jews, and they know what's going on, and they probably figure this could be the result. And they're not quite ready to go there yet. And they shouldn't have been. I mean, there's a time and place for everything. It wasn't the right time to address this. But three years, it's time to address it. They've got to address who they really are and make the distinction between Judaism and what will be Christianity. Christianity. And this is the guy who has the courage um, and the honesty to do it. And so he stands up and he takes the fall for everybody. And essentially what he says, if it's true, means that their religion is null and void. And they are furious. Furious and that's where we pick it up. The next thing that we see is that's exactly what happens. We pick it up in verse 54, and um, we see what what the result is, is that they will um, stone him in anger. When they heard this, they were furious, and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. It can be costly sometimes being a truth-bearer, but I encourage you all to be a truth-bearer because, as we'll see, God rewards us when we're honest and when we do what's right and when we take the stance for what is right. Uh, At first they're furious with him, which in there, it's actually a word picture in Greek. It means that it was like they, he had taken a saw and sawed right through their heart. That's how upset they were with what he did. And he adds to the problem actually with what he does next. He looks up and it's through no fault of his own. He looks up into heavens and he actually has a vision of Jesus. And, this is a comfort, of course, to him. And he points it out. He, he thinks everybody can see it, but only he is able to see it. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, which is different than, uh, than we see in Psalm 100, verse 1, where Jesus is sitting at the right seat of God. He's sitting a- as a co ruler as the co-regent, as the co-equal with God. But why is he standing here? And a lot of people have asked that questions and and there's about 10 different answers and three of them, I think, resonate the best Two are fairly obvious. These are the two that I saw right away. And and that is and and others agreed with is that he's there to receive him. He's basically standing up and said, come, I'm here for you. He wants to embrace him and he's there to comfort him. It's going to be okay. You're going to make it. We're almost done. But there's a third reason that F.F. Bruce, the brilliant uh, British theologian who's now with Jesus, um, brought up. And and that is, he, he says that when a man stands, who's in a position of authority like that, in a trial, he suddenly becomes an advocate, a lawyer, a witness himself. His standing up is him saying, and looking at Stephen, and only having Stephen see him, is his saying, I pronounce you innocent, I pronounce them guilty. And Bruce adds that there's probably a lot more here that we don't even see. What we do understand is that this made the people even more angry. Because, remember, when they asked Jesus, Are you the Messiah? Jesus, for example, in Mark 14 said, I am, which was offensive to them because that's God's name, the great I am. Uh, Yes, I am. But he also goes on to say, and you will see the son of man sitting by the mighty one and coming in the clouds of glory. And what is he now saying? He's saying, I see the son of man sitting by the mighty one in the clouds. That's what got Jesus killed. That wasn't the right thing to say. That got them even angrier. And so they cover their ears, which was a traditional way of saying, we're not going to listen to this blasphemy. And what they have here is a mob riot. I mean, it's like a lynching mob, but without the the rope. You know, they're going to use stones. And they haven't pronounced any sentence on him, but the Sanhedrin doesn't do anything. And I believe that Gamaliel was probably there too. But at this point, he said, I can't help you boys anymore. You've gone too far. And so they're going, to, they're going to actually go after him. And so the, the authorities just sort of look the other way. This happened one other time that we know of in the history of Israel at this point. It happened about, uh, about 30 years later when Jesus' half-brother, Jesus the Just, remember we studied his book, uh, James, James the Just, we studied his book, James, this summer, he was killed in the same way about 30 years later. But they didn't typically do this, and they, they weren't allowed to, supposedly, because Rome is the one who does the killing. And remember what happened. Last time when they tried to do this with Jesus, who did they go to? They went to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, to ask permission. But Pontius Pilate is at the end of his reign. He's beset with problems and he's in far off Caesarea. So they probably just figure, let's look the other way. Nothing's going to happen. And say so they do what they traditionally do. They drag him out of the town. And then they have some guys that are you know, the, the witnesses, these guys would strip down to their loincloths, which are kind of like their running shorts. And it's what they would wear for doing manual labor. And then they would go in and they would knock the victim to his knees and to the ground. And then they'd take stones and start hitting him with them. And they would get the process started for everybody. They had to have their clothes put somewhere. They didn't have a lot of different clothes to wear. So they put them at the feet of a man named Saul had to be a trustworthy man but it also points out that he had to be a significant figure in this whole ordeal he was part of it we're not told exactly what it was we're told he was a young man it means that the word young somewhere between 24 and 40 probably in his 30s we've got some clues later on about the man we find out that he was from Tarsus the leading city of Cilicia remember what we said earlier the church of the freedmen the synagogue of the freedmen was made up of people from Cilicia he was a foreign born Jew. And likely a young rabbi at that synagogue. And likely the main person involved in instigating everything against Stephen. Some think he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Nowhere stated. But very likely he was under their authority doing what he was doing. Does anybody know who Saul becomes? He becomes Paul, the great apostle. This is his dramatic entrance into church history. Luke, the author, becomes his personal physician, um, assistant, and close friend. And he is saying, this is where my mentor came into the picture in a pretty ugly way. And so Saul is involved in this, and then it flashes back, and we see perhaps the most graceful death we've ever seen, other than Jesus himself. And it sets kind of the example for all who will die for Christ in the future. Stephen, as he's being stoned, remembers what Jesus did, and he quotes from Luke 4, and he says, I commit my spirit to you, Lord Jesus. Remember Jesus said, Father, I commit my spirit to you? He equates God the Father with God the Son. You are the great God-man, and I give my spirit to you. And then he does the impossible He does the miraculous, far greater than any miracle that he ever performed. He prays in forgiveness of the men that are killing him. And he asks that God will not hold this charge against them. Have you ever prayed for somebody that you don't like, for your enemies? It changes your whole perspective. It's an amazing thing to do. And he's able to do that. And and it's really incredible. And then he goes to sleep, and the idea is almost like God causes him to fall asleep. And that's a euphemism, of course, for dying. He dies, but God brings his death. It's a horrible scene. And yet, from an eternal perspective, his pain didn't last that long. And then he goes to be with God in heaven, has no more pain, and he's there for eternity in the arms of the Savior. What a picture. Flashes back to Saul. And Saul is giving approval. Everybody's coming up in in modern terms. They're coming up and doing fist bumps and high fives. And they're excited about this thing. They just did him in, got him out of the way. But the people that love Stephen um, and possibly some that were just converted by his lifestyle, they bury him and they break the law because the law is that when a man's been executed, you do not mourn for him, but they mourn deeply. Which means they pound their chest and they lament for 30 to 70 days in defiance of the law, proclaiming his innocence. And then the church is persecuted. Now, there's something that needs to be explained here. At first glance, it appears that the whole church, the entire church is being persecuted. But when we read the rest of Acts, we realize that wasn't the case. The persecution was primarily against the Grecian Jews that were Christians because we'll find that the Grecian Jews or the foreign-born Jews, this minority group, is now flushed out, and they are going all different places. But when we come back, the apostles and the Hebraic Jews, the native-born Jews, are all staying in Jerusalem and that the Jerusalem church grows and flourishes. And so they continue to have this ministry in Jerusalem. Not all bad, but it becomes a very specific ministry now to the Jewish people, and they're very careful how they say things because they don't want this to happen all the time. Um, but it had to happen. There had to be a point where they made a stand for this is who we are and this is what we're all about. And it did. And in the process, all these people get spread all over. Remember what Jesus said at the beginning when Clifton gave the first message on this? He talked about how Jesus said that they were to go to Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and the rest of the world. Well, three years have gone by, guys, and you're still in Jerusalem. You've got 10,000 people and you're still hanging out in Jerusalem. So God uses this horrific event to move them. God does that in our lives today. He can use an illness. He can use a broken relationship. He can use broken health. As we've already said, he can, he can use a loss of a job. Crises in your life to cause you to move where you're supposed to be. Have you ever noticed how many people are coming over as immigrants these days to the Western world and to America? We get nervous about that because some of them are terrorists, and rightly so. But it's actually a, an example of history repeating itself. It's what God always does. When God's people will not reach the world, God will bring the world to his people. And that's what he's doing right now. And that's very much what happened in this passage. They wouldn't go, so he moved them. Now, after that happens, it flashes back again to Mr. Saul. And he is vicious. He's trying to destroy the church. And the language that's used is for a wild beast that would ravage something. And so he's going into these quiet, peaceful homes where just days before people would sit around the table and they would have something to eat and they would talk and they would encourage one another and talk about the Lord and laugh and have fun. And he's just destroying these homes. He's taking people out and he's beating them and putting them in prison where they're getting beaten more, even women that are being taken in, these women are being thrown into these prisons where they have horrific treatment, where they're being beaten, where they're being judged as criminal, where they're being tortured and then put to death. And he's just going around and doing this all over the place. And it's a horrible time, and even those that are Hebraic Jews have to be very careful. In a sense, the church goes underground. They have to be very careful how they do things from this point on. And, and things change. The ball game has changed because of this event. But still, Stephen took the stand that he needed to, and he is a hero of the faith because of it. He didn't try. Notice that he didn't try to do this. He just was honest. But the people had to hear the truth. And once again, God gave them a chance, and they responded in the wrong way. I want to try to pull this together today with something that really hit me, and it's the contrast between Saul and Stephen. And I want you to ask yourself, who are you? It's a good one for us to think about. Who are you? Where do you fall between these two men? Because both men considered themselves very religious. Both men were very zealous for their faith. But both men were going down completely different tracks. And they both would proclaim that they were worshiping the same God. And they were reading the same Bible. But very different. Saul was from Cilicia, as we said. Both men were foreign-born Jews. He probably felt very insecure about that and wanted to prove himself. And so, as we learn later, he learned how to read Hebrew, and he learned how to write Hebrew, and he learned how to speak Aramaic, and he became a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as he later will say. He was about as Jewish as he could possibly be. He was very proud of his heritage. He could trace his heritage all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin, and his name Saul meant king. Well, it didn't mean king, but was, his name Saul was the name of the first, king who came, the first king of Israel who came from Benjamin. And then we have Stephen. And we don't know anything about his background. What we understand with Stephen is it appears that he was born a Jew in a foreign land, that he didn't speak Hebrew, and he didn't write Hebrew, and he didn't speak their language of Aramaic, um, and even his name was Greek. But his name meant crown. And I believe that he will be crowned as a true, you know, prince of the king. And then Saul, you know, you look at Saul, he, he gets. He develops himself and he he goes to all the schooling and and he will study under the acclaimed Gamaliel and he will become this really great student, this brilliant student and orator and teacher. And we believe he became a young rabbi, very likely at the synagogue of the freedmen. And he was a young man and he was having authority given to him by by the uh, Sanhedrin. And look at Stephen. Who does he get his training from? He gets his training, the Holy Spirit is working his life, but he's under the, the, the purview of the, the apostles, all untrained men, most of them fishermen. If he had a mentor, and this is interesting, it was probably Barnabas, who was mentioned earlier and who later has a ministry with Grecian Jews. It's interesting because Barnabas will later, ironically, mentor Saul. But he doesn't have the background and he doesn't have the training. And Saul, he also works as a tent maker and makes, probably makes pretty good money as well as being uh, a prestigious position. He's doing well, but, but not Stephen. Stephen is sacrificing what he has to care for the needy among them. Two very different men. And Saul, um, he sees the Bible as black and white. And Stephen, he says, I don't always know it all, and he trusts the Holy Spirit to guide him through it. And he he concentrates on what he can know, and he causes God to, to guide him through the Holy Spirit. He actually interacts. He knows God personally. And you know what? I believe these two guys debated each other. And I believe that Stephen ripped him up, and Paul was absolutely humiliated by him because Paul had the training, and Stephen didn't, and Stephen still beat him every time. And so Saul became angry. He was angry, and he was ambitious. And he wanted it his way. And he was trying to force fit it himself. Trying to almost make God like him. And Stephen, he was all about grace and love. And in the end, Saul rejoiced because he had killed Stephen. And Stephen rejoiced even more. Saul today is a picture of a person who grows up thinking that they have a relationship with God or that they're a Christian, so to speak, because their grandparents went to church and their parents went to church because they memorized verses in Awanas when they were a kid and went to Sunday school. Or maybe they just do nice things and they think of all the wonderful things they've done and they think, how could God refuse me? Look at all I've done. And they know the way to look at the Bible that's comfortable for them. They've got it all figured out. And yet it, it bothers them that it bothers them when people question them about what they think they have. And they get frustrated. And they get angry. And when the day ends, they feel so empty and they feel like they're trying so hard to be good and they can tell everybody why they're good. They can know it. And yet inside they know something's missing. But Stephen is a different picture. See, Stephen has surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Stephen admitted that he was a sinner in need of a Savior. He believed that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. He chose to follow Christ and put his faith in him alone, right? He did what we often talk about. And look what it did. He got to the point where he could actually pray for the people who were killing him. He got to the point where he was reading the Bible primarily to know God, not just for himself, but to know God and grow close to him and have his guidance in his life. He spent his life caring for his brothers and sisters in Christ and their needs, and he was not willing to he was willing to die for what he believed in and telling other people. God completely transformed the man and made him one of the great saints in church history. He was a guy that had peace and serenity and courage because he was walking with God and he knew him even in the mundane things in life. Which man better suits you? Which one better fits who you are? And and, and come and talk to us. If you're you're on the Saul side, you're where I was most of my first 20 some odd years. And it's a very painful place to be. We want you to get you more on the Stephen side. We maybe never get there all the way where we want, but we need to be moving in that direction. So let's, let's end it this way. Let's say that uh, Saul and Stephen are TV preachers today. What would they be like? I think it's pretty easy to figure out. Saul, just like in his day, would be telling everybody, We're superior. We're better than everybody else. Our country's the best. Everybody else is inferior to us. Be proud of who you are. God made you this way, God has blessed you. I've got the answers. I can tell you anything. You know, you want to know when the world's going to end? I'll tell you. He had it all figured out. It was all in his box. And boy, he would have nice church and buildings, great administrator. Saul would be a very popular TV preacher. How about Stephen? I think Stephen would talk more about how he was a sinner and how you're a sinner and how we need to take care of everybody. And he spent far more time talking about the kingdom of heaven than he would the kingdoms of earth. He would talk about how the Bible guides us in all of life. And anytime the Bible says something, even if we don't understand it, we need to do it. We need to follow it just unerringly. And yet at the same time, we need to understand there's certain things we can't know, but God will guide us through the Holy spirit with what we do need to know and how we apply it in our lives. And you know, I don't even know if he would have a building and if he had one, it wouldn't probably be very pristine. One thing I'm certain of, Stephen would not be a very popular TV preacher. But then again, neither would Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the preaching of Stephen and for his willingness to to lose his life for Christ. Some of us, Lord, are afraid to tell people I, I'm that way sometimes I just I'm, I'm afraid I find myself tongue tied because I'm afraid of what somebody will say if I tell them about my faith and he was willing to lose his life for it may he encourage us Lord may we be truth bearers like him and may we focus more on you and your kingdom and uh, the guidance of your Holy Spirit in our lives and experience your grace in our life even as he did pray that if there's anybody that's struggling with some of these things today they come and talk with us uh, or text us email us and that we could be of encouragement to them. Pray for the ladies who are away in Mount Hermon. Pray that they would have a wonderful time, and that it would, they would come back refreshed and invigorated and encouraging uh, to their families and all of us And they return. And thank you for that opportunity for them. Thank you again for this day, and pray for your continued encouragement as we uh, continue to worship you now. Amen.